This episode of the Digiday Podcast is sponsored by Kiwi. Perhaps you've heard that Facebook has made some changes lately to the newsfeed. Do not panic. If you're a publisher, you should know Kiwi. Publishers like the New York Times, Condé Nast, National Geographic, and BBC all use Kiwi to distribute content profitably on Facebook. Yes, it's possible. Learn more at kiwi.co. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E dot co. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week I am joined by Imran Ahmed. He is the founder of Business of Fashion. Business of Fashion started as a blog in London. Imran bootstrapped it for six years before getting $2 million in seed funding. Today it's one of the leading news sources for the fashion industry. And recently, Business of Fashion announced a subscription model. We talk about uh, growing a business, monetizing it, and keeping an audience loyal through a subscription program. And I must add, if you are into fashion issues, make sure to check out our Glossy podcast. Glossy is Digiday Media's publication focused on the modernization of fashion and beauty. The Glossy podcast last week had on Stitch Fix CEO Katrina Lake. It was a very interesting discussion. Anyway, here's my discussion with Imran. Imran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so for those who do not know the business of fashion, explain it. It the name is on the tin exactly, but uh, explain it for them. So the business of fashion is a global resource for the fashion industry, and it you know it has kind of one of those funny. St- I, I started it as a blog, okay, which was about right, what ten years ago, eleven years ago 11. now. Okay, uh, it was it was my personal blog, so it was like a diary. For my friends and family, um, and you know, I, I I came from a kind of business background. And You're so a consultant. Right? I was a consultant at okay. McKinsey, and um, I just like breaking down problems. And you know, I would just you know, and at the beginning it was very much just whatever I was thinking about or things I had seen, and there was no, I didn't really have a, a person in mind that I was writing for. I was right, except for for me, really. Um, mm-hmm. But over time, it's evolved into like, you know, a very focused analytical uh, take on the fashion industry, which, of course, like everything else in the world, has been massively disrupted um, over the past decade or so. So there's been a lot, a lot to kind of understand uh, and write about. Um, but, you know, it's um, much more than a blog now. There's 75 of us. We have offices based in London and mm-hmm. New York and Shanghai. And it's, you know, it's a multi-platform or multi-revenue business model. There's a subscription business. There's a careers platform, which connects talent uh, with uh, opportunities. We have an events business. We have an online education business. Uh, And all of it is, you know, designed to serve a single community of people globally. And those people are people who are extremely passionate about the fashion industry. They work in the fashion industry or they're studying with the hope of working in the fashion industry. Uh, And they range from everyone from, you know, very, very early stage um, entry level professionals all the way up to the CEO executive suite. And so we're constantly thinking about 
um, those users, that community of people with everything we do with the content, with the products, with the events, everything. So I want to get into the business of the business of fashion, but when did you realize that it could become a a business rather than a blog early on? No, you know, it's, it's one of those things like when you, this is not something that was conceived to be a business. So if you're the person who who conceived of it, you always see it in a certain way until there's, you know, something that shakes you up. And there's kind of two things that happened at once. First is um, I was managing it out of my apartment and I had an assistant who lived on the other side of town and I was running a consulting business. So I, I'd left. This is a really scrappy startup story. When yeah. It starts with your assistant. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> well, yeah. And that only happened after four years, right? Okay. So like, you oh, okay. know, yeah, that, that wasn't, that wasn't something that was built into the mall. <laughs> it was one of my business school classmates who told me like, you need to get some help. So that's why I got an assistant. Okay. Cause it was just, basically it was just completely taking over my life, you know, and I was up until all hours of the night and I was earning money during the day, you know, advising companies and doing all sorts of other things. Uh, And in the evening, this was what I was doing. And it got to the point where it was no longer manageable. And by, by that stage, you know, there was a small group of contributors and, um, and there was a lot of inbound stuff and, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. I just, I I didn't have the resources or the time uh, or the team to actually take that next step. So that's one thing that was happening. The other thing that happened was kind of out of nowhere, like investors and partners and, you know, opportunities started just coming to mm-hmm. me. And, you know, I forget which business school class I was in where, um, you know, one of my professors said, you know, when, when the market speaks, you have to listen. And the market was clearly speaking, like people saw something in this thing I was you know, I would always treat it like a personal project. And so I, I had to make quite a significant mindset shift about, well, okay, if I, if I really want to do this, like, what can I do with it? And I, you know, went off and spent some time thinking about, well, you know, what do we have in place? And at, at that time, really what we had was we had built um, a community of people, you know, that had, you know, been built really by word of mouth, you know, like there was a newsletter and from the very, very, very early days. And then there was obviously social media and all of these things were, were shared and spread around and built quite a, you mm-hmm. know, a word of mouth community, which so this is, is pre Facebook. It is kind early of just, Facebook. just when Facebook was starting to open up beyond college. Okay. Right. And so, you know, um, I wasn't really using Facebook. It was like really like about the newsletter. A lot of people thought it was a newsletter at first. Right. Um, and, you know, when, when Facebook and Twitter and, and these um, social media platforms, it was really Twitter at first, actually, that they started emerging as ways of people to share content or things that they discovered online. That really turbocharged the word of mouth. And that's really how this community was grown. And then the second thing that we had, which I think is maybe one of the hardest things to build online is a you know a genuine brand you know a brand that's not a logo or a name a brand which is you know has emotional resonance which actually means something to people and you know if you say you know what does apple mean to you or what does i don't know nike mean to you people will come back with words you know often very emotional words that can describe what those brands are about the same thing the same kind of response or reaction would happen when you'd ask people who knew a very small group of people mm-hmm. who knew um bof 
they would come back with the same same kind of response. They'd use words like addicted and um, trust and uh, authority. And so um, we had a brand and we had a community, but there was no business model, there was no team, there was no infrastructure. And so I went away to think about like, well, with those two assets, what might we do? Uh, and that was really the, the process of going through this mindset shift of moving it away from a personal project that I did mm-hmm. purely for passion to uh, a business um, that needed, you know, uh, you know, the same kind of strategic thinking and execution uh, as, as, the, as the clients I advised. And, right. you know, that was a that was a big mindset. So we, shift. I mean, you were a consultant, so I'm going to use consultant terms like white space and stuff. What, yeah. what was the white space? Because the the market has you know, players like WWD, uh, and what did you see that wasn't being um, addressed? The, I, I guess like the main, the main observation was that um, there wasn't really analytical content. You know, you know, there's a lot of news reporting in the fashion industry, and, and there's not a lot of that, that was saying, well, what does the news actually mean? Mm-hmm. And as a management consultant, a lot of the time that you spend with your clients, you're looking at tons and tons of data and information, and you're trying to make sense of what it means. And so people really started coming to us because, you know, just after um, I started writing, not only was there the rise of these new kind of technologies that were disrupting the industry, there was the financial crisis, there was globalization, there was the rise of the Chinese market, there was so much change happening all at once that people people really needed to help make sense of it you know they, people needed um a guide in a way to to all of the change that was happening and we became that destination we became the place that started thinking about the forces that were disrupting the industry and what that meant for people mm. who were running businesses so you always wanted it to be i mean obviously with the name business of fashion but to be focused on the business side and not a consumer play yeah, I think, you know, there's some industries that are so fascinating that, you know, even if it's a little bit inside baseball, yeah. there's a lot of people who want to be inside that baseball game. And, you know, there's, you know, we we happen to be in one of those industries it's that petroleum. Exactly. So like it's not a trade and trade publication, a traditional trade publication that's focused on like chemicals or petroleum or you know, tobacco. Gigantic industries. Yeah. And, and, and over the past 10 years, of course, while fashion used to be this like super exclusive insidery industry that no one really got to see beyond the glossy surface, um, it all opened up. And, you know, we actually have quite a significant consumer following. We called them the prosumers. And, the, you know, they're the professional consumers of fashion who want to know more than just the latest trends. They're really interested in how it all works. So almost, although we don't write for those people in particular, mm-hmm. we've ended up with a kind of B to B to C proposition where right. we're writing for the industry, but by virtue of the interest in our industry, yeah. there's lots of people that want to read it who don't work in fashion. I mean, I always say, I mean, there are industries that punch above their weight culturally um, and just societally. I mean, that's why Politico works. Um, you know, I mean, we focus on media and marketing with Digiday. I mean, the media industry punches above its weight. You know, petroleum's a gigantic industry, but it doesn't have a lot of cultural resonance. No, exactly. And, you know, fashion is increasingly connected with 
other big industries. It's connected with technology. It's connected with beauty. It's connected with entertainment. It's, so the, the, the rise of fashion as a new pillar of popular culture is very much a part of our story as well. Because 10 years ago, uh, you know, people couldn't follow fashion in the same way some people follow sports or right. but now you can you know now there's all of these big personalities and companies and brands that people are obsessed with and that that same level of obsession that some people mm -hmm. might have for sports um other people have for fashion. right and there's a little bit of a soap opera quality of who's up who's down who's leaving yeah i mean yeah leave. you know we don't have like a you know a, a draft but we have fashion week and you know <laughs> we don't have you know like you know, major league baseball statistics that people are tracking, but we have our own metrics that help us gauge performance, you know? And so, um, it is, you know, it is a bit of a, a, a sport yeah. for some people. So uh, one of the advantages of, of focusing on the business side is it opens up a different kind of business model from consumer plays that are very often they've been scale based in the last uh, several years. I explain how you, you, went about, you know, building the business side? Well, one thing I just want to clarify is, you know, when we say we're focusing on the business of fashion, that, that also includes creative people. And one of the very mm -hmm. early insights was that actually, you know, the fashion industry, like many creative industries, is made up of this like right brain and left brain, you know, dance. You have all these creative people who need to find a way of you know channeling their creative in a, creativity in a way that can be commercialized and monetized, and as a result, there's always you know other creative industries like music and film. There's like a very clear delineation and structure around like the management people and the creative people. Um, but when I started first exploring the fashion industry, I realized that in fashion, it's a lot. A lot murkier, you know, and there wasn't always a lot of clarity, and there wasn't always a lot of understanding between the creative people and business people. So one of the first things was actually creating a way for creative people in fashion to understand business, and for business people in fashion to understand the creative side. And that was like maybe one of the first really special things that we we did that I think set us apart. We don't write in a jargonistic way. We try to write in a way that everybody, no matter who you are in the industry can understand. Mm -hmm. So um, that being said, in terms of like the way we built and the way we're building our business is, you know, it's certainly not a mass play, but that offers all sorts of benefits because we have, you know, in everything that we do, we have a specific community of people in mind. And that can really help you focus your offering and focus your attention. It focuses the commercial partnerships you do. It focuses mm -hmm. the editorial you do. You know, it all goes. And you the, get to ignore a lot of things. Yeah, that's a giant which, advantage. Which is amazing because, like, you can you can really be that highly curated destination that people. You don't need a, like an algorithm to like make it work because you know you're editing it the old-fashioned way, which is judgment and understanding of what mm -hmm. your reader is interested in. So I guess. I guess that's, you know, one of the first things It really helps to focus your attention. The second thing is there's a big global opportunity. So like, whereas in the, the previous, you know, traditional media approach to covering the fashion industry, a lot of these players were really locally focused. You know, there was a German trade publication for fashion. There was a French publication publication for fashion mm -hmm. there was a japanese one there was a british one there was an american one and 
none of them had really gone after the global opportunity. None of them had thought about fashion as a global industry. They were often looking at it through the lens of their local markets. So it actually ends up being quite a big opportunity because the fashion industry globally is a 2.5 trillion dollar industry. And that's from some work that we've been doing with McKinsey and company over the past couple of years in this report that we do called the state of fashion. And that's a huge industry. And you know, when that industry was in the process over the last decade or so of going through rapid globalization, creating a publication that could really speak to that industry globally, putting all of those markets together in one place and being able to kind of um, level it out. So people were thinking just as much about China as they were about the US or about Western Europe or about, you know, even even more kind of obscure markets like Australia or mm -hmm. Nigeria. I mean, if you're a business of fashion reader, um, it doesn't matter where you are working in the industry, there's something for you there. So there is a real global opportunity. Not only is that interesting editorially, it also proves to be interesting from a commercial standpoint. So through our offices um, between Shanghai, London, and New York, we're increasingly working with partners thinking across those markets and creating commercial opportunities across those markets. Mm -hmm. And our, our paid subscription product is also targeted at a much larger potential audience than just any one of those local right. markets. Quick break to talk about our sponsor this week. Distributing your content cost-effectively on Facebook is more important than ever. Kiwi helps hundreds of publishers like the New York Times, Condé Nast, National Geographic, and BBC do just that. Whether you're looking to drive more traffic, increase video viewership, drive subscriptions, or sell products online, Kiwi can help you find and target the audience that matters most and at the best price. Visit Kiwi.co to learn more. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E.co. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Thank you, Kiwi. So talk to me about the portfolio. I mean, because, you know, there's, there's ads, there's subscriptions, there's events. Um, and a lot of these things are, I mean, they're fairly standard. I, I feel like, you know, particularly when you have, uh, when you're aimed at a professional audience, you know, there's, there's some obvious slices to the plot, to, to the pie. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think uh, we're reinventing or kind of creating an entirely new business model. But I think what's different is that we found a way to take, you know, tr traditionally trade publications would make money from subscriptions, advertising, you know, classified ads, often around jobs yep. um, and events. And we do all of those things, but we found a way of doing that digitally. You know, we found a way of doing it in a way that's modern and different. So if, you know, we started, you know, when we first moved into that office and there was about four of us in the office that, you know, and it was five years ago now, February, 2013, mm -hmm. that, you know, I And really, this is in London. This is in London, yeah. Um, we didn't really know how we were gonna make money. We had lots of ideas. And, you know, we, you know, the easiest thing to do was to stick up some banner ads around the site and try to sell them. Um, but the focus and the goal was always to create special products and services for the industry that you know created value for this community that we had been you know building for the you know the previous six years. Um, the first thing that we launched that was genuinely uh, different um, I, was this thing called um, BOF Careers. So this is again, it's like not rocket science, but there was no global place or destination for people looking for talent or people seeking new opportunities to go to anywhere 
in the fashion industry. There was a lot of local job sites in different markets. You know, some of the trade publications would do ads. But, you know, if you were Louis Vuitton or if you were Michael Kors or if you were uh, Hermene Gildo Zenia and you wanted to, you know, post jobs and look for talent globally, there was nowhere where you could do that. So we launched that business in uh, 2014 with seven partners in seven different countries. And overnight we had, you know, 200 jobs all around the world, coolest jobs. It was overnight became like the most interesting place to look for jobs in fashion. You can really get a sense of the breadth and the, you know, the difference, uh, the different opportunities that are available to work in this industry. Mm -hmm. Today, that platform has more than 300 partners. We've, you know, um, serviced over 300,000 job applications. There's 1,500 live jobs doing every possible job you can imagine in the fashion industry. So while it wasn't rocket science to make money from, you know, a careers platform, um, you know, the way we did it was different. We also monetized it differently. We weren't selling posts, we created an annual subscription for our partners. So you don't buy a job posting, you buy a subscription to a service that helps you to talk about your employer brand, mm -hmm. that helps you to reach uh, as many jobs or post as many jobs as you'd like to reach the best talent, by the way, who's coming to the website every day to get their daily dose of BOF. So it's really connecting different elements of our community. Shortly thereafter, we, you know, we'd always had a really large, young, professional and student community. Uh, one of the early posts that I wrote on BOF back in February 2007 was called The Business of Fashion Basics, How to Set Up a Fashion Business from Scratch. And even six or seven or eight years later, it was still consistently, you know, in the top two or three um, articles uh, of content on the website. So we knew there was a kind of a really big appetite for people who wanted to learn. So how one, one thing we did just to experiment, I was really curious about, you know, taking things like the Khan Academy or Coursera, or these, mm -hmm. you know, the online learning courses, like, could we do something like that? So we turned those courses into um, uh, those kind of written articles into online videos. And we, you know, we got a little bit of experience on how you create an online course. And now we're actually, we've started creating paid online courses um, that are accompanied by a global ranking of fashion schools. And that global ranking of fashion schools all over the world creates, you know, quite a, a lot of right. interest from young people who are into the industry. And then alongside that, there are products that we can sell. Right. And then, by the way, we also brought... Um, schools into the picture. They wanted to, you know, advertise or have a position around this um, annual ranking, and so we we kind of went after that education market. And then, you know, in 2016, we 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 really took the big plunge uh, into events and into the subscription right. um, business, which, you know, after 10 years was yeah. I'm surprised you waited so long to to get into events. Well, we were always... I say this since we started in events. Yeah, we... <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, we always did events. You know, I started doing the, f the first event that we ever did um, was in back in January 2008. But when I say we really went into it, I mean, we went after it in a, in a meaningful way, you know. But, yeah. you know, everything that we've done since the history of, of, of BOF 11 years ago, let's always start with experiments. I have this talk that I do for our team 
when they're joining the company and we call it a series of little digital experiments because that's how BOF has grown. And, you know, that little first event that might have had 50 people at it in 2008 grew into uh, a year later, a live streamed conversation that I did with, you know, uh, Natalie Massonet, who had just sold her company to Richemont that grew mm -hmm. into a small curated set of, um, you know, conversations we did at the Sydney Opera House. And then finally was a big global conference that was, you know, two and a half days long. Um, so yeah, we've always done events, but when I mean we really went after events, I mean we like had a dedicated focus team that really pushed into it. And that events business, while you know not eminent, as eminently scalable as some of the other parts of our business, has become a critical and you know essential part of what we do. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, I think probably the most important decision was when we were going to start charging for content. And that you know, right from the day we uh, that was part of that business plan that I wrote and you just you put know. it off for several years well because we didn't want it to impact right. our opportunity to scale the audience so what made you decide that this was uh, last year I guess was was the right time uh, a little bit of intuition a little bit of learning from seeing what was going on in the market mm -hmm. around content and feedback from our community saying yeah I, I would pay for it you know, and you know, we're lucky to be in touch with our community all the time, sometimes through social, but oftentimes through conversations. And I started raising it with people. I said, you know, like would, you know, they would tell me, oh, we, I'm addicted to it. I love it. I read it every morning. My natural next question would be, mm -hmm. well, what would you pay for it? And almost without exception, people said yes. So we spent uh, almost a year coming up with our strategy for how we were going to launch it, you know, what was going to be the technology that underpinned it, what was the value proposition, what we were going to call it, you know, you know, the whole thing. And it required collaboration and work from across our entire team, uh, our content team, our uh, product team, our technology team, our commercial team. And, you know, it was really, you know, the whole company got behind it. And although there was a little bit of resistance uh, early on, um, because not everyone was sure it was the right moment. It, you know, the response has been, you know, exceptional mm -hmm. and much, 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 much better than any any of us expected. Right. Even me. And but it's, I was it's like, not really, a straight paywall because, no. you know, because I think one of the big concerns, um, and you know, we're doing a, a paid component too, is, you know, the freely available content does so many different. It does so many jobs for the business um, that you you don't want to. You don't want to do away with that. So explain how you decided to construct uh, the paid model. So we use um, a hybrid model between uh, a metered paywall and exclusive content for members only. And so we, through our kind of an analysis of user behavior on the site, we realized that the right point at which um, to start charging people was after five articles, which... I think has become quite of a, a kind of common hurdle. I think the New York Times has just gone down to five articles too. Mm -hmm. But we could see through our behavior that by, you know, keeping it at five articles, we weren't going to limit the opportunity for the casual reader of BOF to come back and enjoy content or for new potential readers to BOF to, to kind of come to the site for the first time and click around a bit. We were really targeting the professional reader, the one that was coming regularly, almost if not on a, a daily, you know, sometimes on an hourly basis to check what was going on on the website. We were very, very clear about who we were going after. So it became 
very, you know, going back to what I said earlier, if you know who you're trying to、mm -hmm. reach all the time, then it helps making decisions about what you do and how you do it much, much easier. And as we knew we were going after that professional reader,、uh, we also knew that, you know, a lot of them would be able to、um, charge back the expense of the subscriptions to their business. We had a,、uh, a set of group and team packages that we launched from the start.、Um, and, you know, we, we were really, really focused on, You know, providing a way for people to discover the site, but then also just really target the people to charge it. And then on top of that, through, we did a user forum, right? And we actually took a, a printed out version of what that paywall was going to look like and invited some of our most engaged users. And we didn't really tell them what it was for, but, you know, we always we have such an engaged community. So, you know, we wrote to a few of these people and we said, you know, we have a, a, something we want to. You know, test with you. Will you come in? And I think ten, about 10 people came into the office.、Mm -hmm. and we sat them around a table、um, and, you know, the, a, a kind of a printout of what the paywall was going to say and what was going to look like and what the value proposition was going to be was on the other side of that page. And we asked them to turn it over and kind of gauge their reaction. And that meeting ended up being so helpful to us in terms of understanding what the reaction might be, how we'd want to position it. And based on that, actually, we decided to communicate it in a slightly different way, as opposed to suddenly putting up a wall.、Um, we talked about the wall before it went up, and we gave those hyper engaged users a chance to sign up even. Before the wall went up, we offered them a 50% early bird discount for signing up early. And, you know, it was really a nice way of recognizing that a lot of people have been supporting and, and、mm -hmm. you know, following the site for such a long time, many of them since the very, very early days. We, we just wanted to find a way of making sure that that transition. That mindset, actually, that mindset shift actually that I had back in the day, which was like, if I'm going to do this as a business one day, we're going to have to charge for content.、Right. I needed to get our community to make that same shift, which is okay, you've been, I've been seeing this thing for free and regularly using it for years. How am I going to shift to the idea that I'm not, I now have to pay for it? It helps if they can charge it to a, co a corporate card. That's for sure. It definitely helps. It also helps that you know, it's constantly referenced、yeah. in the meetings, in the studios, in the boardrooms, in the classrooms, all over the industry. So,、um, because of it, it's part of the conversation. If you go to your boss and say, I, you know, I really need this to do my job,、yeah. it's very likely your boss is reading it every day, too. So, what kind of conversion rates do you think you can hope for? Because I had Meredith、um, uh, Levine here from the New York Times、um, last year, and we were talking about, you know, basically for consumer publications, 5%, okay, that's good. Like getting for the New York Times to convert more than 10% of their audience to subscribers is a home run. I mean, that's, that would be like amazing, but the, the numbers are, are against them.、Um, What do you think for a professional audience like、um, you can actually get to? So, we haven't thought about conversion. I'm asking this with complete interest. Yeah,、obviously. we haven't. <laughs> you know, no, and it's a really good question because actually, some of the pushback I got from our leadership team when, you know, one fine day I was like, this year, 2016, we're going to start charging for content. You know, a lot of them, you know, some of them went away and looked at the, the metrics out in the public domain on conversion. And, It did not paint a pretty picture because, you know, we are not the scale of the New York Times.、Right. You know, we are a much more focused publication. And、uh, in order for the 
the kind of investment required to make sense, our conversion rates would have to be much, much higher than, you know, some of the benchmarks that we discovered. And I, I always had a very strong conviction that our conversion rates would be orders of magnitude higher than, you know, a typical consumer focused publication. And um, I just felt it in my gut. But that's been proven. Um, that's proven to be the case very much right from when we first mentioned we were going to, to launch or put up this paywall. Um, so I don't, we've never thought about it as like what percent of our total audience can we convert? But now that you're asking me, I think it's significantly higher than 10%. I think okay. we're, you know, I think we're already beyond that actually. So, um, I, I have, I have a, a very high level of confidence about, about our ability to continue to convert people, especially as we're now learning what converts them. And we, we're constantly tracking the kind of content that people are interested in, the kind of, um, you know, pitches. and They have to hit the wall several times. Yeah, they have to hit the wall several times. But, or sometimes there's just a certain kind of article that's against a hard paywall. Because I, you know, one thing I didn't mention is there is also some content that you can only read as a member. Right. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you, you, know, you've, you've, you haven't hit your limit that month. Um, if that, if you need to read that article to stay smart and be aware of what's going on and get the BOF take on a key industry happening or a key issue that's being discussed in your meeting with a client tomorrow or in the classroom that, um, with your students tomorrow, you know, people just, you know, it converts people mm -hmm. you know, very, very, um, efficiently. How about the edit staff? Do they get behind this eventually? Yes. And actually, um, it's been a huge confidence booster. You know, it's been, it's, it, I feel like it's really elevated. It's elevated the confidence of the whole business. Cause once we started seeing those conversions coming through, there was a little competition for like, you know, the, the kind of conversion rates and all of that before we launched. And, you know, the whole company just got so excited about it, especially the edit staff, because, um, it's it's really rewarding to know that you're creating something that people are willing to pay for. Mm -hmm. You know, it focuses the mind, it focuses the business, but it also makes you realize and that you have to up your game. You know, and it, I think it's I think it's you know, it's created an even higher hurdle for us internally of what we think is a BOF worthy. We call it professional grade content because mm -hmm. our product is called BOF Professional, and now it's become part of our lingo in, in our in our editorial meetings. Like, I'm not sure if that's professional grade content. Okay, <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the fashion industry. We have our own fashion focused uh, publication and glossy, so I'm I'm, a, I'm at least fashion curious. What You're a you, prosumer. What? Yeah, I'm a prosumer. What What to you is is obviously this is an industry. I mean, one of the things that attracted to us is it, to us was that like media and marketing, it's an industry undergoing its own change. Thanks in large part to a bunch of different forces. Digital is 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 one of them. What do you think right now is the biggest issue facing the fashion industry? The single biggest issue. Wow. Um, it's so hard to boil it down to one thing just because there's change happening on so many levels. So I'm going to cheat and not just make it one thing if that's okay. I mean, 
First of all, can't be eight though. It won't be eight. It will be three because okay. at, at McKinsey, good. at McKinsey, we always did things in threes, and it's yeah. kind of entered into my Bible head. did too. On a on a kind of very macro level, there is, and this is true for businesses around the world, but particularly true for large global consumer facing industries like fashion. There is a sense of you know geopolitical macroeconomic uncertainty that's pervading everything um and although you know we're at a rare moment in the last 10 years where you know all the major economies of the world are expanding Mm -hmm. um simultaneously that is being done in the backdrop of like you know a day when then the market's gonna be down you know five percent a day and then up you know you know there's so much uncertainty in the in the world and that's created for for executives in our industry a very hard um a landscape to navigate and you know most of the industry is having to kind of really really um think about how they can focus on the things that are under their control while also operating in a context where it seems like you know you never know what's going to happen you know a tweet storm from donald trump can you know demotivate consumers from going into stores there can be like but it's also it's something they can't control so why even focus on it though isn't it, it? they can't they shouldn't focus on it but but it can impact their business and it yeah. can be a distraction so you know being able to see really really clearly through all of that noise and focus on the things under your control is something that you know all of the executives are really you know thinking about right now so that's that's okay. kind of one theme of stuff that i think is really important um the second thing is like radical shifts in consumer behavior and preferences. And, um, you know, not only are consumers increasingly observing and learning about fashion through their phones and everything that's happening on social media and like more than 50% of transactions on e-commerce sites are happening on phones and they're, they're able to walk into stores and compare prices. I mean, they have so much more information now than they've ever, mm-hmm. ever had before. And, you know, this is not an industry that's known for being comfortable with transparency. And, you know, they there was a well, time... Well, that's kind of baked into the exclusivity, right? Well, partially that, but there was a time when also, like, you could charge double the price for a Louis Vuitton handbag in Japan than you could right. in Paris. But now these consumers are traveling all over the world. They have all of this information. You know, industry can't do that anymore. And, you know the consumer is most certainly in charge. The most consumer is controlling the conversation about fashion mm-hmm. now. And that is such a massive shift for um, executives and creative people in this industry to, to, to accept because they were used to controlling everything. They were used to controlling what was in the magazines, what product was in the stores, what pricing um, um, strategies they used. And they're starting to ask questions about the supply chain and... And ethics and, you know, sustainability, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think that consumer shift is, has been, um, it's been, you know, going for, you know, 10 years now, but it's accelerating and it's getting to the point now, um, you know, where, you know, the consumers, you know, very, very, very much in the driver's seat, and the executives are trying to figure out how to, like, you know, influence the direction right. that their brands take, as opposed to controlling it. And then the last piece is a more like inward focusing industry thing, and you know, there's a you know a wider reckoning 
happening in the fashion industry, not just about like the purpose of fashion week, which has been in question for a few years now, but also about the ethics and behavior of the people in our industry. And this is an industry that's been able to keep secrets and, you know, operate in some ways that, you know, is, you know, increasingly seen as unacceptable and especially in the, in the kind of context and environment that we're in now. And, you, know, you mean beyond having it's it, fashion is having its own me too moment. Fashion every is having is. its own me too moment and it's not reacting in a way that I think maybe other industries are. So while there, are, you know, this is something that is pervasive throughout politics and entertainment, you know, you know, even like, you know, um, the media industry, uh, you know, Silicon Valley, everyone's having their me too moment, but in those industries, people are, more likely to be raising their hands, apologizing, and taking responsibility mm-hmm. for that their behavior. That goes back to the control thing, right? I mean, they're not used to... They're not. And But, you know, our industry, you, know, you have all of these things happening, and it's just denial. It's one denial after another, you know? And um, in the background, you know, there's this wider conversation happening in the industry about, well, you know, what's going to happen? This is going to be, a, 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 a you know... I think 2018 is going to be a year of reckoning for this industry. And it's finally going to be an, uh, a moment when the industry like, you know, takes a long, hard look at itself uh, and hopefully finds a way of reorienting, restructuring, repositioning um, the values, the behaviors and the ethics underpinning mm-hmm. the business that happens every single day at a fashion shoot or a fashion show in a casting meeting, whatever it might be. You know, this is the business of fashion as well. It's, right. it's not just about what you're selling in the stores. It's how you're creating the imagery, you know, how you're communicating the product. And oftentimes that's happening in, in a context which um, certain people have a lot of power mm-hmm. and, and that power is beginning uh, to shift. So it seems like looking ahead like five years, I mean, obviously it's going to be more inclusive. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, fashion is not the most inclusive industry, has not been traditionally, right? Um, Certainly it seemed to be, it's going to be more open, right? Um, And I would guess it's going to be a lot more global as it moves to the, but particularly as it moves to the fast growth economies. I mean, we're in like economies basically in decline right now, like the Western economies are. Yeah. So in that report that we do with McKinsey every year, this year is a symbolic tipping point for the fashion industry globally that more than 50%, it's going to tip over that more than 50% of the revenues are going to come from emerging economies in Asia, in South America, in Africa, and in Eastern Europe. And that symbolic shift um, is it's actually quite you know, important, right. fundamental change because the industry could be for many years focused on consumers in established Western markets and Japan. How about generational change? I'm not going to say the M word, but, you know, younger generations, uh, different patterns. Look, some people, may, I don't think ownership is going to go away. I don't think experiences will mean that, you know, people want to own just one shirt. But how do you think uh, the industry will need to adapt to generational change? Or do you think it won't? I mean, when, or do you, you know, is it like the red wine industry? You know, you, you get a to certain age and, you know, you start to act a certain way. No, it absolutely needs to shift. It's already shifting. So probably the best way to tell that story is through the lens of Gucci 
So like four or five years ago, Gucci was still trying to coast on the halo of its days under Tom Ford, uh, who reinvented that brand and kind of um, created this multi-billion dollar behemoth. Um, and then for years, it kind of languished until um, a new creative director was appointed, Alessandro Michele, under a revolutionary and quite dynamic CEO named Marco Bizzari. And um, it's astounding, but that, that is an absolutely huge business. It's m many, many, many billions of euros, and it's, it's growing at 40% year-on-year growth. And it's the superstar. It's the superstar, and 50% of the revenues are coming from, and I'm going to use the M word, millennial consumers. We based our entire last print issue. We do two print issues a year, which I didn't mention in my um, overview of our model. But print is a platform. Print is a platform. And the, the entire issue was called Generation Next. And it was really about trying to understand this consumer and what, what they're interested in, what gets them excited. And you can see the impact of that consumer throughout the fashion industry. The rise of the streetwear market, yeah. that is all about that consumer. The um, And both sides are taking from, from the other. It's interesting to see the streetwear brands moving into high fashion and then high fashion, you know, adopting totally. streetwear. And, and Everyone's going to have a drop. Yeah, you know, that drop-based <laughs> business model that's more like an Instagram feed than it is like a seasonal collection. Yeah. You know, that that is the merging of, you know, social media and streetwear and the new way that y those young consumers, you know, that's the way they think. They don't think about autumn, winter 2018. They think about the latest, you know, Supreme or Palace drop in the store yeah. and they want to run off and get it. And Palace is right, by the way, outside. Oh, so is it? You can... So you see that queue outside here? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're this is actually a great block for, for fashion um, because we've got across the street, we've got a, a Nike lab. We have V files. I next saw door. that, um, and then we've got Palace, and I don't know something else. Yeah, no, I mean, well, Mercer Street's always been a really interesting. And there's always been an interesting fashion uh, retail agglomeration here. You really get a pulse of what's going on. But um, to finish off on the millennials, I think the you know a, a lot of the success of the brands that are doing really, really well right now, Balenciaga, Gucci, Supreme, you know, it comes from really understanding how to engage with that consumer. It doesn't mean, you know, that you, you have to break what you did before. You know, Gucci is really successful because they're still doing like beautiful, luxurious, um, very, very expensive sometimes um, products, but they're also doing more easily accessible products all under this halo that they, you know, they, they're just breaking the way they do it. So they, you know, they release campaigns based on like aliens, not supermodels. Um, they're doing immersive events. They work with Instagram artists creating murals that go up around the world. Um, all of this stuff is part of what gets people excited. So they're using some traditional stuff and some right. new stuff in a way that feels fresh. Cool. Imran, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, and I hope you did, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And also, a reminder about Digiday Plus. That is our membership product where you get our magazine, invites to member events, access to our Slack community, and exclusive research. We just wrapped up our spring issue. Um, it focuses on media and marketing after the age of Facebook. To find out more, visit digiday.com and go to the Digiday Plus tab in the menu bar. 
Digiday Plus is just $395 a year, but if you want a 25% discount, enter code PODCAST at checkout. Thanks again.